This podcast is from the RAND Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision-making through research and analysis. Visit www.rand.org to learn more about us and to explore RAND's free online library of more than 10,000 policy reports and commentaries. Good evening. I'm Dahlia Dasa-Kay, the director of the RAND Center for Middle East Public Policy and tonight's moderator for a discussion on Syrian refugees, humanitarian and security perspectives. At RAND, I've written and spoken widely about regional security challenges in the Middle East, most recently focusing on Iran and the nuclear deal. But with all the turmoil across the region today, the Syrian displacement and refugee crisis is one of the most daunting challenges. At RAND, we have been focusing on this issue for a number of years to better understand not only the humanitarian challenge, but also the longer-term political, economic, and social impact of this massive Syrian refugee influx into neighboring states and into Europe. Let me briefly introduce our panelists, who will further inform us about the enormity of this challenge, as well as the most effective ways to try to cope with it. Nancy Ossie is president and CEO of International Medical Corps. We are also fortunate to have her serve on RAND Center for Middle East Public Policy Advisory Board. Ben Conable is a senior international policy analyst at RAND, a professor at the Pardee RAND Graduate School, and a retired Marine Corps intelligence and Arabic-speaking foreign area officer. Shelley Culbertson is a policy analyst at RAND. She is currently conducting research about urban services and education for Syrian refugees in Jordan, Turkey, and Lebanon. So I think what we need to do, Nancy, starting with you, is understand the scope of this problem. Your organization has worked around the world for many years on these kinds of displacement challenges. Uh, How would you place the Syrian refugee crisis we're seeing today in context, um, what kind of challenge are we facing? Um, is it similar or different to previous refugee mm-hmm. flows? Um, and why should we care about this? You know, why here mm-hmm. in our comfortable situation in Santa Monica, you know, it, it, tell us a little bit about the, the, the um, extent of this challenge that we're seeing. Okay, so thank you, Dahlia, for having me here, and thanks, everyone, for coming tonight. I... Um, I'm going to start a little bit with um, some statistics and then try to put them in perspective because the magnitude of this crisis is so enormous that sometimes it's hard even for us to really get our heads around it. And with no clear end in sight, this is one of the reasons why we face such a tremendous challenge because it's grinding into its fifth year. So we, International Medical Corps has been working inside Syria, actually in Damascus, since 2007 before the war. We did not see this coming, uh, and we did not think it would continue for this long when it did come. I think it's taken everyone by surprise, and I think it still continues to really baffle uh, the world community as, in regards to how to handle it, what to do about it, and what the future holds. So going to the humanitarian piece of you know, what it's like for uh, a Syrian, uh, whether they're inside Syria or they were able to escape, so many people have lost their lives, people whose names we'll never know. Uh, the, the numbers, um, you know, the predicted numbers are several hundred thousand people have already died. And uh, we don't really have a total handle on those numbers, but certainly they are growing every single day as we speak. But we do have a handle on some of the um, other numbers. So inside Syria, there's roughly 13.5 million people that need humanitarian aid. And, and about half of those people are living outside of their homes, you know, what we call internally displaced Syria is not a safe place. So if you're living outside of your home in Syria and you have no coping mechanisms, on top of that you have this tremendous violence, that's a tremendous number of people that are at immediate risk. And we know that so many millions more have also then fled to the neighboring countries. Turkey has close to 2 million. Lebanon has about a million and a half refugees. 
Jordan, you know, the, the numbers um, and estimates are, are a little bit different. There's an official estimate, but the unofficial estimate is well over a million people. And Iraq has about a quarter of a million. So these neighboring countries have taken in massive amounts of people without the infrastructure to really handle them or to support them in the way that they would like to, and not knowing whether they were there for six months are now going on five years. One of the big challenges we face is that you know, there's in Jordan you will have there are refugee camps, and so the situation in every camp is a little bit different. But many of these refugees are living inside urban areas, and that's one of the main differences of this particular crisis. In Lebanon, when we look at the numbers, it's one in three people are refugees. So think about that: one in three people, so th- you know, a third of the country are people that are homeless living in apartments and and garages and alleys with officially no camps at all. And these these governments in these countries are trying to find the best way that they can to cope with the magnitude of the crises. One of the things that I think changed the visibility, of course, of this crisis was what happened last September when the little boy washed up on the beach. For the most part, the neighboring countries have felt the tremendous strain on their resources in trying to take care of people and meanwhile, people inside Syria are not only you know, fleeing as much as they can, they're fleeing into border camps, trying to get into those camps, and then, of course, more recently, you know, over the last few months in Europe as well. So the scale of this is tremendous. The suffering and the, the atrocities um, and the violence that is being committed against people, many of them children, and the fact that there doesn't seem to be any near end in sight. So okay. just. Well, um, nice to start on a um, very sober <laughs> note, but that I is know, the it's... nature of the challenge we have. Yeah. So, Shelley, I mean, as Nancy outlined, uh, uh, you know, Lebanon has no official camps, over 80%, I think, in Jordan and elsewhere are in urban areas. So, this is a different kind of refugee challenge than we've seen in the past. A lot of. People may have images of refugee camps, big sprawling camps, and our board went to one of them and a few years ago and visited the urban areas too, but this is a really urban crisis that host countries are dealing with. So maybe you can uh, give us a little more sense, especially on the vulnerable population, the children, which are over, I think, half of the refugee population now in all the neighboring states. Um, how are host countries dealing in particular with educating these children who, again, have this tremendous uncertainty? Am I in this country six months? Am I here two years? You know, this is the span. This is half the lifetime of some of these kids already, five years. You know, um, if, they, if they came there when they were five, they're already 10. When they were 10, they're teenagers. It's tremendous. So maybe you can give us, Shelley's written a report on the education issue a little more on um, uh, building on some of Nancy's points of the general scope of how the countries are dealing with the children. So let me add a little bit to the context that Nancy gave um, and provide just a little bit more uh, that will provide some background for the education situa- situation. So first, as, as Dahlia, as you had mentioned, and also Nancy, the crisis is largely urban. So in Jordan and Lebanon, uh, in Jordan, over 80% of the refugees are in urban areas, not camps. Lebanon doesn't have any camps. Turkey, uh, about 90% of the refugees are in urban areas and not camps. Um, And so this is a very different crisis than many other crises that have seen before. In a camp, um, the international humanitarian community can can come together. The refugees are all in one place. You can provide services. But in this case, the refugees are largely intermingled with with the host communities. So in, in Jordan, Lebanon, and Turkey, the governments have opened up public services like education and healthcare and so forth. Uh, refugees are competing in the labor markets and in the housing markets. And so it's a very, uh, very combined um, circumstance. Um, the next thing to think about is that this is really a middle-income crisis. Um, while many refugee circumstances have been of refugees who, who are fleeing a failed state and then going to another weak or failed state, in this case, uh, The Syrians were coming from what used to be a middle-income country and then going to other middle-income countries. Um, And Jordan, Turkey, Lebanon all have very robust public services, not perfect, uh, still developing countries, but they have higher levels of capacity than in many other refugee crises. Um, Because of this, 
because the refugees are in urban areas, the countries are really becoming maxed out. They've opened their education systems. Um, in many cases, the numbers of Syrians are outnumbering the numbers of, of citizens in the areas where the Syrians are, are largely concentrated. It's pushing out resources and so forth. And then finally, it's becoming protracted. Um, a protracted refugee situation is defined as one that lasts five years or longer. And the UN has found that in cases that are protracted refugee crisis, crises, the average time to return is 25 years. And so you can't predict um, how long the Syrian crisis will last. There's a ceasefire, um, but it's not stable. But if we can learn from history, it, it may be a while before the refugees can return. So in our education study, what we did was we looked at four aspects of education within this context. So access, management, society, and quality. And just a brief outline of our findings were that in terms of access, there is a huge crisis of access to education. About half of the Syrian refugee children are not enrolled in formal school. That's over 700,000 Syrian children who are not in school. And that's not including the ones that are in Syria um, that are out of school. The, the data there is, is much less clear. Um, management. The crisis has largely been managed as a short-term uh, response with a, a patchwork of, of programs. And yet, if we think about the, the history of other crises, it's likely to last a, a long time. So short-term plans uh, to deal with a longer-term crisis really are just not sufficient. Um, society, uh, what, we, what we found is that of the, of the Syrian children who are enrolled in school, about half of them are enrolled in schools or special shifts just for Syrians only. So about half are essentially in segregated um, um, education systems, and we know how well that's worked out in, in, in our country or, for example, in Northern Ireland where Catholics and Protestants have historically been educated separately. Um, it can lead to a lot of tensions by separating communities. And then finally, quality. So all of this has affected education quality for both the refugee children um, as well as the host community children. Uh, classrooms are crowded. Teachers are dealing with circumstances in which they've got multiple levels of children. They've got a lot of uh, traumatized children uh, dealing with different curricula and so forth. And because of the strength in the budget, what this, what's happening is that investments are really being crowded out for the host countries. So while Jordan, Lebanon, and Turkey had been investing in quality improvements uh, for their own citizens, um, now those are really on hold as they're just trying to uh, stop the gaps with, um, with the refugees. And Shelley, you visited some of these schools, right, in your field work to observe <laughs> what was happening um, yes. on the ground? Yeah, we've uh, we visited uh, school, uh, schools and refugee camps, schools and host communities um, uh, across three different studies, looking at both education and and and, and um, public sector management at large. We did uh, we did about seventy focus groups, largely with um, with children and teachers, uh, as well as about one hundred and ten interviews across the three studies and school visits. So we, we've yeah we've done a lot of, of talking with the people who've been involved. Right, which is so important to have a sense of the realities on the ground, which is why this is such a great panel, and your questions can get to that. Um, ben, I want to turn to you because Shelley's raising a, you know, uh, the issue of over half of these 700,000 Syrian children not in school. Um, that's a lot of kids with nothing to do. And, um, and, you know, I know we saw that when we had visited some of the urban areas with a high population of refugees on the Jordan, Jordanian-Syrian border and in the camp as well. And a lot of us were asking, it's a lot of young boys here not going to school, not working. Um, you know, what are the implications of this? Especially if, as Shelley says, this is, this, you know, history tells us these tend to be protracted crises. And 25 years is a long time. So, Getting to the question of security, um, is this something, you know, you have done work looking particularly in Jordan. What has been the effect of this population on Jordan's stability? And, you know, what is your assessment of um, the risk potential of this population if not handled properly? First of all, God forbid my kids had nothing to do. I think I'm, right. I'm, I'm in trouble. Right? <laughs> Any of I, our kids. <laughs> I, I, I don't want to make light of There's nothing to be made light of here. I, I, yeah. But, but uh, it is good to maybe crack something every once in a while. Um, you have a map in front of you. Uh, so I'd ask you, if you're not intimately familiar with the Middle East, just look down at it and see where Jordan is uh, in the Middle East. And, if you, you know, it's the middle. It's essentially the middle, right? I mean, and it's the middle of a big mess. Uh, it's got Egypt on one side, Saudi Arabia on the other, Syria, Iraq, and, and Lebanon up in the upper left-hand corner there, far off 
not too far from its border, right? And um, it is essentially surrounded by either unrest or disaster, uh, with really Israel being the only stable anchor point there. Uh, Saudi Arabia is stable, but uh, looks can be deceiving. More importantly, Jordan is probably our last remaining real ally in the region. We can count on them consistently for just about everything we do. And I will tell you, as an expert in security and as a former Marine and Naval attache to the Hashemite Kingdom of Jordan, if we lose Jordan, we are in much more serious trouble in the Middle East than we are in now. We cannot lose Jordan. And so with that, go back and look at the micro level. King Abdullah came out a few weeks ago and made a very plain statement. He said, we're at our limit. We've had enough. Jordan has a long history of accepting refugees. They accepted uh, over a million Palestinian refugees. They accepted waves of refugees after the Gulf War. They accepted refugees after the 1982 Hama massacre. Uh, and they've accepted refugees after the uh, 2003 uh, war as well, and also after the 1999-1991 Gulf War. Um, so they have essentially served as the safety valve for the entire region. They've taken in people that countries like Saudi Arabia and other countries don't want to take in because they're so concerned about their internal stability. And because Jordan is generally a moderate country, because Jordan is accepting of people, it has found ways to incorporate them into its society, even if it's not entirely successful, it has been able to take that pressure off. So the question then becomes, if we don't want to lose Jordan, and we have all these people there, and the king of the country tells us that we're about to break, where's the breaking point? So the study that we did was a year of dedicated back and forth interviews with people. We went out and spoke with security experts, economic experts, and experts on Jordanian society. And we went out into the countryside and talked to folks as well. And the assessment that we made at the end of last year, was, or I'm sorry, at the beginning of last year, was that if Jordan received all of the aid money that it asked for, that it would not only be okay, and there would be almost no security issues, but that actually it could thrive because it could use the aid money to help the rest of the Jordanian citizens. The challenge is that they've gotten less than half of what they've asked for. Now, the United States has been exceptionally generous, but other countries have not met their objectives, and they have not met the Jordanians' needs, more importantly. And so, so far, there have been very few security incidents inside of Jordan tied to Syrian refugees, despite the fact that there may be anywhere from 680,000 to a million Syrian refugees in the country, and they are almost all impoverished. So if, that, if you were asking yourself, are these people a threat, then at least in this context, so far they are not. We have to stop that from changing. And the only way to do that is to ensure that Jordan has that, that stability that we're looking for. And I, I think Dolly's going to ask, ask me that in the next question. Um, <laughs> See, so I, I'll, this I'll is hold great. On I that. don't even have to do my job. Right. Go ahead. Yeah, I've asked it. So far... <laughs> Very few public security incidents tied to the Syrians other than some criminal behavior, which at a population that size you, you would expect. Very little social unrest. And as a matter of fact, the Syrian refugees who were polled, we did a meta-analysis of about 40 larger studies that have been done by the UN and other organizations. The Syrians are actually uh, happier being in Jordan than a lot of Jordanians are. And they actually <laughs> like the Jordanians more than the Jordanians like them. Right? <laughs> And they're technically proficient. They tend to be generally well-educated. There's a lot of potential there for those Syrian refugees to do a lot of good in Jordan. But the municipal, at the municipal level and at the national level, Jordan is breaking. At the municipal level, and Shelley has done a lot of work on this too, and we agree, we, we concur about 100% here. Um, tell me if you don't. But, uh, 80%. 80%. <laughs> they are... They are breaking at the municipal levels. They cannot provide goods and services, and Shelley just talked about some of the challenges. And so if they continue to fail there, it's not just the threat from the Syrian refugees, it's the threat from the Jordanian citizens to their own government. Right? And at the national level, they are essentially now completely dependent on donor aid. And if that slips, they are in serious trouble. All right, well, now that you mentioned the question of donor aid and international assistance, it's a good segue to Nancy and the question of the response to this, to these daunting challenges. Um, you know, what is your assessment? Are you, are, are, is the international donor community meeting your needs of an NGO like the one you run in terms of the massive challenge in front of you? And how are you looking at the responses and how they're evolving um, okay. over time? Well, I, just to piggyback a little bit on the Jordanian um, comment, 
You know, Jordan, I couldn't agree with you more. Jordan has been extraordinary for many, many years. I, you know, in many ways, they're the un, unsung hero in a lot of this work. And uh, what's interesting about it, and because the king has been very vocal about this challenge, challenge to, uh, you know, the welfare of the of the people that are coming to his country who who he cares a lot about. I mean the, the Jordanian government has tremendous amount of compassion uh, for the refugees in their country. And and that's extraordinary because as we know that that's not always in the, the case. Uh, that and also the fact though that he's been speaking out uh, loudly about this for a long time and it wasn't until what happened in Europe that suddenly yeah, his words started affect? to how well, it's a, it, well, it changed. It yeah. basically cha- put the focus on the on on the impact of this crisis on the rest of the world. I mean, prior to that, it was I would say pretty much seen as a Middle East problem, right. Middle East challenge. Even though um, countries were speaking out, and certainly the king was vocal about, I don't know how long we can do this. I don't know how long we can do this. It, you know, the, the people are coming to our shores; they'll be coming to your shores too. They it really did pretty much fall on deaf ears, I think, until um, the little boy washed up on the beach. Mm-hmm. And then cer- certainly the conversation started changing, and I believe that um, people started listening to the king in a, in a slightly different way. As far as the um, international assistance, I think because everyone un- underestimated the scale of, of this conflict from the very beginning right. and as well as the length, right. there, wasn't, there wasn't really a lot of uh, donor support. Um, either for governments like Jordan or for the people themselves. The U.S. government uh, has been extraordinarily uh, generous and, in mm-hmm. fact, has really carried the load on humanitarian assistance and continues to do that and did that at the very beginning when this conflict broke out. Um, and other other governments and European and other governments are stepping forward as well. Um, and certainly certain Middle East um, countries are stepping forward. But one of the big concerns we have about about aid is that it's so true that the like in a place like Jordan, but that the local structures need to be supported. Uh, the local, you know, whether they're governments or civil society in the in these countries, they have to be supported because we saw this in in the whole Darfur region. It's called the Glass Triangle. So many of the in Darfur, so many of the refugees poured into Chad. In Chad, people are already living on one or two dollars a day. Going to your point about a poor country, and so you ha- we had to support. Uh, what was happening in Chad in order to also support, you know, the refugees that were coming into the country. It's the same thing in the surrounding countries, that without strong systems so that they can take care of their own people, uh, you know, they're they're at tremendous amount of risk and a tremendous amount of strain. And one of the concerns we have around donor assistance is that there's going to be fatigue. Even though there is more attention now, uh, people don't see an end in sight, and that eventually people will view it as, well, you know, we can't help everybody, right. uh, and that there's going to be a lack of interest. Right. Now, right. sometimes when there's something in the in the media or there's some new um, development that suddenly people take interest again, right. but a lot of these commitments go unfunded. Right. A number of times there will be a call for action or a call for support, and then governments just don't step up and, and provide that support. Right. So we are very concerned about the assistance. I just want to make one other point on that. You know, if there's a natural disaster like, you know, Haiti or, you know, the Indian Ocean tsunami or or Nepal, uh, International Medical Corps, we did a a partnership with Facebook in Nepal that raised in a period of, uh, you know, one and a half weeks, like $18 million. That was the power of of, uh, Facebook's platform. But in a natural disaster, uh, people often feel like, well, there's something I can do about it. Right. Or I was in an earthquake once, or I once experienced, you know, was in a tsunami. And there's a different amount of compassion. And the assistance, although short term, it tends to flow in a tremendous way, certainly in America from individuals and around the world as well. When it comes to conflicts, conflicts are just a little different. There are certain conflicts that will capture, you know, the attention of everyone, and then suddenly there will be assistance that follows from individuals. But this particular conflict, this war, has not really um, drawn uh, a tremendous amount of private sector support. There has been mm-hmm. some corporations have uh, have stepped forward, some foundations mm-hmm. uh, have stepped forward and and have helped, uh, but most of the assistance has come from, you know, governments, and in this case, most of the assistance from U.S. taxpayers. 
And so we're, there just is simply not enough resources to meet the needs. As, as, as Ben mentioned, um, you know, governments like Jordan need help, uh, but so do local NGOs. Uh, and so do organizations, or what we call international organizations like ours. We need the assistance too. And going to your point about education, I mean, talk about a major challenge and a long-term challenge. Think about all the number of children that are being raised in, whether it's an urban area or refugee camp, without reliable education. And that's certainly a long-term yeah. expense and not a short-term one. Well, that's going to get us to Shelley, but just, um, you know, it is remarkable when you're mentioning the shift in focus when it when this crisis hit Europe. You know, it's amazing because if you didn't have the uh, crisis you have in the region where you have over 4 million, I mean, you have the maps and the numbers in front of you, um, the numbers are really you know, far fewer in comparison in Europe, but yet that's what caught the world's attention. As soon as these migration flows starting to reach the shores of Europe and Greece and, and, and onward, that's when everybody started to focus on it. But the but the truth is, if you didn't, if you resolved the conflict and addressed it adequately in the neighboring states, of course, if you solve Syria, that would help everything. But but that goes without saying. But if we had adequately addressed the international community, donors, et cetera, the challenges that Jordan, Lebanon, and Turkey are facing that you all have outlined, you wouldn't have the crisis you're facing today. Right, I just want one point on that, going to the how it compares sometimes with other or conflicts. Think about the Rwandan genocide. One million people crossed the border from Rwanda into, at that time, what, what was um, Zaire refugee camps in a period of about a week on foot. Uh, certainly in the Balkans, we, th- we saw tens of thousands of people on foot leaving their country. Why do, why do people that are often going to be more at risk in the next country, not always the case, but often, why do they, why do they flee on foot? Well, because they are afraid. They have seen so much violence. They've been driven from their homes, uh, and and they will take tremendous risk because there's a lot of risk in leaving your home as well, not knowing that you may never see it again, knowing that you may be separated from your family, that and knowing that you might not even survive the trip. And so, in in these other situations, we see this massive movement of people literally grabbing what they can on a moment's notice. The lucky ones are the ones who are with their families or they know where their families are or they have all their children with them. They're the lucky ones. But they literally leave on foot. They're exposed to the elements. And they're not always received very well whatsoever. We saw that in Europe, in the camps during the Rwandan genocide. Many of the Hutus that committed the atrocities against the Tutsis were in those same camps. So they met some of the, they would meet up with some of the people who had killed their families. And so the, you know, people don't want to leave their countries to the extent that you can help them stay in your country, in their country. It's, they're much better off. That's something that we've done at International Medical Corps for years. We've tried to help people stay within their country. But when you see the tremendous violence in a place like we do in Syria right now, any one of us would flee given the opportunity and try to get to a place that's safer even if they're living out of their house or out of their homes and even if their future is not so secure, at least they feel more safe than they would if they otherwise stayed. Yeah. Well, and then, you know, obviously um, fleeing Syria is the, is the first priority and because of the, the dire situation there. But in the neighboring state, Shelley, turning to you, how can we think about solutions to at least, uh, given that we do expect this to be a protracted problem, as you suggested, um, what solutions might be possible to at least improve the conditions for those refugees who are staying in the neighboring states? Because given the conditions they're facing in Europe, I think many are going to go back, and and I think Jordan, Lebanon, and Turkey are going to continue hosting the bulk of this community. Um, And I know you were just recently at a Silicon, I think it was Silicon Valley conference that uh, Deputy Secretary of State Anthony Blinken hosted on uh, with entrepreneurs and experts like yourself to try to figure out solutions, creative solutions to the education problem, which is one of the biggest challenges. What are some of the findings? So leave us a little more hopeful about, um, you know, instead of images of poor refugees, you know, on foot trying to get somewhere to safety, what are some potential solutions to help them where they are? Well, circumstances are pretty dire. Uh, I, can't, I can't be too incredibly hopeful uh, at this point, but I'll talk about some overall uh, ideas about solutions for public sector management um, uh, across sectors, but with, you know, with more examples on, on education. Um, the, fir- the first is, is really looking at 
um, every public sector with a 10-year outlook and thinking about 10-year plans. So when the crisis first started, um, plans were on six-month base basis and then went to a year, and then recently they've, they've, they've gone out to three years. So there, there are a lot of reasons why this hasn't been looked at as a long-term issue um, until now. And, and Nancy alluded to one of those, which is just that nobody expected it would go this long. Um, there wasn't the expectation. The host countries politically just can't say that this is going to be a long-term issue. They would have too much backlash um, from their populations. And then there are also very uh, straightforward logistic issues, like U.S. Congress does budgets for refugee situations on annual cycles. So even within those constraints, it's important to think about how can you set up uh, the main sectors that are important to refugees, like education, health care, uh, public sanitation and water, and so forth, with this longer-term vision so that programs aren't really temporary patchworks, but are at least thinking about what this would look like into the future. Um, the next is really getting behind national systems and helping to expand those. So um, in the... Over, over recent decades, um, a lot of the experience from the, aid, from the aid community has been developed again in this, these circumstances of, of weak states and camps where organizations need to come in and basically set up almost a state within a state, you know, separate, separate schools and clinics and housing and, and, and so forth separately. But in this case, since the refugees are so integrated, um, there, there needs to be a, a much more integrated approach. Um, but what we're seeing is, uh, for example, when you look at the UN budget requests, the, the vast majority of the budgets are requested for the, um, for the international assistance community. And there should be a huge amount requested for the international assistance community. But as Ben was saying, there also needs to be a getting behind of the governments, um, helping them to expand their capacity. So in the case of education, um, the governments of Jordan and Lebanon have said, okay, refugees, you can come and enter my, my school systems, but there literally are not enough public school spaces. There aren't enough buildings and there aren't enough teachers. Um, so what we're recommending is, is transferring resources and responsibility to the governments where if the governments are willing uh, to, to play this role, um, to directly pay teacher salaries, directly fund some buildings, whereas... Um, Funding of buildings is usually viewed as a longer-term development issue rather than a refugee response. So viewing it um, differently. So trying to come up with win-win solutions, basically, yeah. where you're helping the refugees, but you're helping the host country, so there's less resentment of the yeah. refugee. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So I think th th those are two two broad areas. Uh, and in terms of education, we had a number of, of smaller ones, uh, such as you know, over time integrating classrooms, uh, so that. If, if the Syrians are in these countries for a long time, you don't end up with a situation in which they're viewed as sort of a separate um, underclass uh, developing tensions. Um, um, looking at the needs of both genders, so girls have particular needs, you know, um, early marriage, um, sexual and gender-based violence, and so forth, but boys also do, and that tends to also be forgotten. And if you look at enrollment rates in education, boys have about half the rates of education that the girls do, and yet there isn't the similar kind of focus on the little boys. Um, the, the reason for that is that when, um, when families are desperately poor, they're, they're more likely to send their boys out to work than their girls. So the boys are, are they're out in the street working and they're not getting educated. Um, so those are the, some of the considerations that we would suggest. And Ben, just finally, before we turn to the audience, in terms of um, Jordan and your assessment of the risks there and what the U.S. can be doing to help um, in terms of uh, addressing the challenges Jordan's facing, in addition to just funding the government, are there other things that we could be doing? Should we be letting more refugees into this country? Um, it's a big debate here. Uh, is that something we should be throwing in the mix, or is it really that, you know, that would be a drop in the bucket? What we really need to be doing is bolstering the stability of these these countries who are doing so much to host these, these well, I'm glad refugees. you opened the door to that question. I was yeah. I Well, I figured it's going to be up in the... Uh, I, yeah, it was uh, coming yes. anyway, right? Not so, in a politicized yeah. way, uh, so very I think factual. Well, I agree with everything yeah. that's been said so far, and I, I, I would... You know, it's not all our fault, and it's not all at our feet to fix. There are things that the host nations can do, specifically Jordan really needs to think about how willing it is to accept these Syrian refugees as long-term, possibly residents. And if they're going to do that, then they need to start thinking about giving them work permits and letting them work. Right. And there are a lot of benefits to letting that happen. Shelley and I, I agree again. You can cut me off if you're 
if I'm overstating the case, uh, that the money needs to go to NGOs, but it also needs to go to the municipal level. It needs to go to places like New Ramtha and Urbud and Mufruk in the north part of Jordan where they can't deliver the basic services anymore because they're completely overwhelmed. Imagine if Santa Monica took in another million people and what, what that would do to municipal services uh, without any external aid. So that is, that is a, an issue. And the United States could immediately do something to affect that. We are missing leadership. There is no global leadership on this issue. None. Despite the fact that the United States has been incredibly generous, despite the fact that President Obama has been very forceful and directive in terms of trying to help people, there's no global consensus, global leadership on how to solve this problem. I think everybody's just kind of hoping it will go away. And that deeply affects countries like Jordan, who are now suffering for that kind of general assessment. And now the last thing I'll say, and I will turn it over back yeah. to you, Dahlia. And this is, mind you, this is a retired Marine saying this. <laughs> and I've, I've, like many of my colleagues, we all have an intimate familiarity with killing. If we took half the money that was being spent on killing people in the Middle East right now and dropping bombs in, in Syria and Iraq uh, and spent it supporting countries like Jordan, Lebanon, and, and maybe if Turkey needs it as well, that's fine, uh, to help do something about this refugee problem, then I think we could actually feel like we were doing something positive, and I think we actually would be doing something positive. All right. Well, I think that's a, a great way to kind of conclude. Um, why don't we open it up to the audience here? I'm sure many of you have questions. I believe, David. Yeah, thank you, Dahlia. So I see Ms. Ashrup here. Uh, I'm going to give the microphone to her for a quick question. Uh, this is really addressed to all of you on the panel. Thank you. You've given us a terrific feeling of what's going on there. And in, few, in just a few words, you've accomplished enough a lot and brought us up to a better level than we get from just reading the newspapers and watching the news. Um, this is what my question is. As we go into the spring and pretty much from Easter on, the weather will start warming and that means migration is going to come with it. And that migration, I imagine, is going to go north mainly and into Eastern Europe and then further north in Europe. And there's already so many problems. You see this is part of what's going on in the debate between whether the UK should stay in the European Union or not. And it has ramifications all over. I'd love it if you could speak about this and educate us some on this issue. Because all we know, it's a big mess that's getting bigger every day. And you people are really involved in it. So if you could give us some education on it. Any order you'd like, guys. Uh, it was a good observation and a good, and a good question. And uh, you're already seeing Europe closing the doors. Uh, and I thought there was a remarkable response last year to the, to the refugee problem. Germany really did some amazing things in terms of welcoming people. And in, to shortly answer the question I didn't, you know, that, that I didn't answer before, Dahlia, I think we can take in more. And I'm happy to touch on that more later. But um, Europe is in serious trouble, Greece in particular. Uh, is in serious trouble. They just pulled their ambassador back, I believe, from Austria uh, because the doors are being closed and they're being stuck with the, with the problem. And as you know, Greece is already in dire straits. Um, th there are physical problems uh, and challenges in terms of cutting off the refugee flow. Um, the Schengen Treaty allows for free movement between borders. That is already having the, the, the refugee crisis is having a serious impact on EU internal stability on the, the very fabric that holds the EU together, this, this drive to become an ever closer union, and it's coming right uh, you know, at the edge of this vote that the United Kingdom is about to have about whether or not they're going to stay in the union. Worse is that Russia is taking advantage of, the, uh, of the, some of the, the violence issues associated with some of the refugees, particularly in Germany, to inflame the right wing, uh, and that's something that they do kind of as a matter of course. So I, this is a, it is not only a challenge to EU internal stability, but is also a challenge to the security of not only Eastern Europe, but also of Western Europe. Anything to add, either of you, on the European crisis? Um, sure, I, I won't speak so much to the, the migration to Europe itself, but why is it happening? Well, it's, it's happening first because people are leaving Syria under really difficult situations, but they're going first off into the Middle East, right. and now they're leaving the Middle East, uh, Jordan, Lebanon, Turkey. And at, at the, the conference hosted by Deputy Secretary Blinken that you mentioned, um, they're looking at education because um, what they're hearing is that a lot of the migration is because people 
the refugees who are in the Middle East look forward and they see no future for themselves. And it, it comes down to, in particular, to two things. One is education and one is work, And as Ben was, was, was talking about. Um, the refugees are not allowed to work. They can't support themselves. There's not enough assistance money. Uh, so they either work in the black market and under exploitative conditions or they starve. So without education and work or without continued investment in making the conditions of the refugees in the Middle East host countries um, just just more, 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 hum more humane, um, we'll, I think we'll see a lot more migration. Which just shows you the spillover effect of this. What happens in the Middle East doesn't stay in the Middle East. I think that's the, the clear message coming out. Or any final? Oh, well, just, and, and certainly um, on top of the difficulty that, um, that the migration has caused, as well as the, um, I guess, you know, ISIS has been very, very effective. I mean, they said that they were going to um, make sure that the refugees were not wanted and were not welcome. And they've done an incredibly great job of starting to turn a lot of the opinion uh, around against the refugees because so much of what we're seeing among the many challenges that exist is just genuine fear that people are afraid and that, you know, and it only takes a few. And we've seen that certainly in our country as well. And, uh, and a lot of that has been um, as a result of ISIS saying, we are going to make sure you are afraid of them uh, because they can hurt you, and we're going to make sure you perceive them that way. And it's, it's just it's so sad, very unfortunate, to say that to some extent that has worked well. And because, you know, what, you know, what they want is they don't want these, you know, refugees in Western countries, and they don't want the West, you know, um, having them come to, the, to their, you know, countries and assimilating. And so they want to create this divide in these societies. And they've been a big part of how that's been fueled along the way uh, from, a, I guess, a, from a security uh, aspect. I think that's a great point. And, um, you know, we like facts here at RAND. And I, Brian Jenkins has uh, testified recently on the Hill on, on this uh, related issue and um, points out that only... Uh, despite the perception and the fear, which is real and legitimate. There are real security concerns. Um, but facts matter, and has pointed out that only uh, two um, incidents of uh, uh, accusations of terrorists have been convicted, only two convicted terrorists in over 25 years of um, cases of refugees coming to this country, only two convicted of, of terrorism charges. So I think it's important to put those facts into the discussion, whatever side you're on, facts matter. Um, and we need, to, we need to get a handle on these growing fears and have a real discourse about this. Okay, more, I'm sure there's a lot of questions. We have a question here. Uh, could you provide some statistic in terms of uh, Europe, US, and if there are some uh, refugees in Israel, you forgot probably to say, mention Israel. There's some number of refugees in that area. And the, also, could you say, what's the distribution of the uh, Muslim and Christian refugees? Uh, Where well, mostly Christians moving? Uh, okay, so question on the demographics of the refugee population, put it in perspective in the region. Any of you focused on that? I don't that? have those numbers on my fingertips. I don't. I don't. No, I don't think yeah. there's actually data on it. Um, the, the UN's not recording information about religion or ethnicity when, when people cross the border. They get citizenship. Um, certainly there are a lot of fears about demographic shifts. Um, as Nancy had mentioned, you know, one-third of the people in Lebanon are now, are now Syrian, so that, that causes a lot of, 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 of concern. But it's the, 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 the refugee situation seems to be largely geographic, uh, where people are fleeing in mass from certain areas, and it's it's hitting everybody from different social classes, um, from different religions, and so forth. So uh, you're really seeing um, everybody fleeing um, to a certain extent. All right, we've got another question right here. Hi, thank you so much for a fabulous uh, presentation and very insightful comments. I have been listening to some people who suggest that maybe some solution is um, recognizing that a huge population coming from the outside uh, re um, generates resentment from the uh, host countries. And uh, some people are suggesting perhaps uh, the better solution would be to have uh, an area within Syria uh, where those people that are uh, disadvantaged in this situation would be given um, help and services 
uh, which would probably require a no-ply zone. Can you discuss that for, our, for us? Tell us more about that. I think yeah. Ben wants to do that one, huh? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> Military. Yeah. So we, did, we studied the resentment. There is resentment, and I think a lot of it is a perceived impact on, on employment, on employability uh, in Jordan in particular, uh, that the Syrians are taking all our jobs. There's actually no data to back that up. And in some of the areas with the highest refugee populations percentages, uh, unemployment's actually gone down in the official statistics. But perception matters. And so there are two intertwined issues there with the thing that you're asking about. Uh, it's, it would be hosting the refugees or finding a safe place for them in Syria and then creating a no-fly zone. Uh, and so really the only area where you could possibly do that is in this southern green dome. Uh, there's just Dara and, and other areas down there. The, the challenge is, and, and it's become even more difficult now that Russia's in there, is that that area has, is under mixed control. So there are elements of various rebel groups in that area that control it, and some of them are friendly to the United States and Jordan. There are, there are, members, there are areas that are under control of the Assad regime, and some of those are like little tendrils down through the whole area um, inside that dome where we would create a southern no-fly zone. And they are under air protection from the Russian Air Force. Uh, and then there are Islamic State groups and other extremist groups also operating down there in little bits and pieces. And so it's not safe on the ground uh, unless we sent in ground <laughs> troops. Um, and if we did that, we would come, probably come into conflict with Syrian army forces protected by the Russians and also Lebanese Hezbollah. And so a ground attack in order to create the space for that safe area would probably lead to direct conflict with Iran, Lebanese Hezbollah, the Assad regime, and probably Russia. Um, and unfortunately, I think we might have been able to do a no-fly zone. Now, I don't, it's, not, it's not a bad question, and it's not, it's not something we should throw out quickly. The problem is that Russia's entrance into the war uh, has really made that almost an impossibility. Um, so I think, well, in, in, in theory, it's a good idea. In, if you really start looking at the practical details, it, it almost becomes impossible, almost. You know, maybe somebody smarter than me could figure that out, maybe at RAND. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I've asked some of our military colleagues that question and have gotten pretty much the same answer. So, Hi, how are you? My name is Fadia. I'm a Syrian refugee. Please stay. I'm okay. <laughs> I'm peaceful. <laughs> um, thank you so much. I just want to thank you on behalf of all the Syrian people because you have interest and you talk about the Syrian issue. I want just to talk about the um, uh, giving aid for the uh, Arab countries, the borders country. Like, I think from uh, my experience, like the Syrian uh, regime, they used to uh, accept a lot of refugee and take a lot of uh, international aid, but in fact, uh, they were not able to deliver the uh, aid for the refugee. And I think all the Arab countries, they share the same kind of, unfortunately, um, uh, corruption. So um, I think just helping Jordan, probably Jordan much better a little bit than Syria, but still we are covering just half million. We are talking now about half of the population, about 10 million Syrian people. And most of them, they are displaced internally, so inside Syria. People inside Syria, they don't have any ways to get any kind of aid. They are blocked. They can't leave Syria. All the bordering country, they blocked people from leaving. So basically, they are not allowed even to go to the camps in Jordan, Iraq, or Turkey. Another thing, like the Arab country, the bordering country, they don't really recognize refugees like in Europe or in the U.S. They don't give them papers. They are not allowed to leave the camps and to work. To be stateless, like I have been, I spent a year and a half stateless in the U.S. I can't work. It's impossible. So I know people in Jordan, they have been in the refugee camps for five years now, and they are stateless. They can't leave. They are explored. They take advantage of them. Um, I don't see sustainable solution to keep people in those camps. It's not the, the answer that, okay, we'll give this country the money and they will take care of them. They don't. They don't have the system or the infrastructure. Thank you. Thank you very much. Very important perspective. All right. Uh, we've got... Um, 
quick. Oh, did you want to? Well, I, I think that, um, Nancy, I thought maybe you'd want to speak to the, I, because I think uh, rightly um, was pointing to the issue within Syria itself, because when you look at the numbers in, in terms of internally displaced, mm -hmm. it's it's um, as large of yeah. a crisis or bigger even than the, than the outside the country. So anything to say in terms of the humanitarian assistance reaching mm -hmm. that population? And well, thank you for yeah. saying what you did from your perspective. My... Um, heart literally goes to the people inside the country. Um, it, I mentioned earlier that, uh, gosh, you know, for all the um, millions that are on the borders, there are literally millions inside li living out of their homes, um, forcibly living out of their homes, still under tremendous attack from all the warring parties. I mean, you know, for all the conflicts that are happening inside Syria, they're, they're on the run. Uh, and you're right, they can't escape their country. It's extremely violent and extremely dangerous inside Syria. Uh, the, um, the things that are happening inside, the war crimes that are being committed, we haven't even began to start knowing really the stories of, of what's happening inside, inside the country right now as, as, we, as, we, um, as we sit here. And um, it's, a, it's, just a, it's just a tragedy. I mean, I, I, you know, I don't mean, I know I opened up with, kind of on a down note, and I don't mean to sound, mm -hmm. but it is, it is a tragedy. It's, um, they're, you know, these people are just caught in a horrible situation, and they're being attacked by all sides, and they're just in the crossfires of, of whether it's bombing or Assad or the warring parties, or they're sometimes they're just, they're just targeted and hunted, literally hunted, and uh, they don't have any way out. And so, it's a very serious problem. We are um, supporting health workers inside Syria. We know what's happening there on the ground, and we know how dangerous it is. And, and um, it's, you can't even begin to imagine that this could be play, playing out um, in today's world for, for so many years. Um, and yet, you know, in so many ways, so the world community has felt, to some extent, helpless um, to really, really have an impact there. I think we'll hold off on more responses till we get more questions, but I think we, we, I think you do deserve a response to the the question of, is it just a waste of money to be supporting these host governments? You know, I mean, that's a legitimate question. Is it going to go to the right places? Is, are you really? So let's put that on the, you know, on, think about that as we hear other questions, and maybe you could respond. All right, then we've got a question up front here. I know this is not your immediate concern, but what is the end game? Uh, you know, at, at some point, uh, hopefully, this conflict will be resolved. Uh, will these refugees return to Syria? Uh, what's your experience with refugees? Will they stay where they are? Uh, what is the plan? Uh, ultimately, uh, they will either stay where they are or they'll go back. You know, what is your experience? Is there a plan for returning them to Syria or to where, they're, where they are? What about those who are in Germany and Europe? Will they be expected to assimilate, or will they be expected to return to their home country? There, there currently isn't a, a large-scale plan on what to do after the war ends, because the, it, it looks like it's going to go on for a while. So, so refugees can either stay in, in their new host country, they can get asylum in a third country, or they can, they can return. But again, going back to some of the numbers that we were talking about earlier, it, once a refugee crisis becomes protracted, on average, it's about 25 years until most of the refugees can return. So... In this case, um, these numbers are enormous. I can't imagine that, that that many people would stay in the neighboring countries if they got the ability to go back if things were stabilized. But it will be a long, hard process. And, and a, a, a huge problem is that even if, even if everything were solved tomorrow and there were, there were no more fighting and the borders opened and Syrians could go home, there's been such tremendous infrastructure destruction. I mean, you've seen these pictures of entire streets, bombed out buildings. So where do they live? Where are the hospitals? Where are the schools? This is going to be a massive rebuilding task um, in addition to just a, a huge effort of, you know, what do you do with all these people? Um, and uh, just going back to the numbers that the, the, the Syrian lady was, was mentioning, fully half of Syria's population is displaced. I mean, how do you get a country with half of the population displaced? It's staggering. So it's a, it's a big, big challenge. And Ben, you had wanted to just respond because is part of the solution or the end game um, integration into these host countries? And, and is that something, you know, why do you think that's feasible? Well, we have, we have a Syrian refugee here, and she kind of, you know, right. raised this issue. 
uh, about what are, what are we going to do with everybody. I agree with you. They can't stay in camps. That's not what camps are for. Camps are supposed to be temporary. And it's, it's, a, it's a double tragedy that these people have been stuck in camps. Thankfully, so many of them are out in the community. The problem is the communities are failing as well. Um, I would, I'm going to use this opportunity to talk about a situation like yours where you came to the United States and here you are, you know, I mean, you're not, you're not threatening anybody. You seem like a perfectly reasonable person, right? <laughs> you said it yourself, right? You are welcome here. <laughs> Self-proclaimed peaceful person, right? So I have to be careful at RAND, right? I don't go into emotional statements or anything like that. So luckily I've actually published a RAND-approved op-ed uh, with a colleague of mine named Kim Cragen where I said we should be taking in more refugees to the United States. And our argument, collectively, was that the failure to deal with this problem and the failure to take in more refugees as a symbol and also as a, in, in practicality is an ISIS recruiting tool. We are playing right into the hands of the group that is trying to kill Americans, has proclaimed openly that they want to attack the United States, and we saw the impact of that right here in San Bernardino. Not from Syrian refugees, but from ISIS-inspired terrorists. And so what is, what is going to be worse for us in the long run? Is it going to be in taking the risk of bringing Syrian refugees in here and having a few of them possibly do something bad? Or is it going to be having millions of people disenfranchised from their government, dispossessed from their homes, stuck in dusty camps, poor, starving, and shut out from the entire world? Which is the better recruiting pool for the Islamic State? And I, I don't think I even have to answer that. Well said. All right. So I, we're getting very close to uh, the end of our program, but I, we have time for one more question. My colleague here has a question there. Hi. Thank you so much for um, coming and speaking about policy and your ideas. What I was wondering is, based on what the military situation is right now in Syria, um, from what I understand, Russia and the Iranian Revolutionary Guards have had a pretty successful um, have pretty successful momentum going towards Aleppo and some of the other major Syrian cities. Given what you guys said before about how Jordan is is known as a humanitarian country bringing in refugees, what prevents Mr. Assad um, from using that to his advantage to continue his war and further push refugees out of Syria out of Syria into Jordan? And furthermore, given the Russian success. Um, what is, is there any proactive strategy now that we know that there is that there could be a potential more massive refugee problem? I, I guess that's another Ben, but we're going to let um, yeah, yeah. we're going to let um, yeah. the ladies on the panel uh, have the final word after you. Okay, so I, Aleppo, thankfully for Jordan, uh, not good for Turkey, but Aleppo's in the north of the country, and so the 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 major progress, as you point out, has been towards Aleppo, uh, and it's a another tragedy within a tragedy uh, there up in Aleppo. Uh, it's possible that within the next few months, the Assad regime, with Russian assistance, with uh, Iranian assistance, could take Aleppo, uh, which is, you know, the former artistic capital of Syria, uh, and beautiful, quite a beautiful city if you'd ever been there. Um, so you, you will see a, a rush of refugees uh, probably towards the Turkish border. You're already seeing it. Um, it but the Turkish border is, is being kind of shut down as well. You're probably going to see more internally displaced persons, and, and those are often the ones who are worse off. Um, would Assad use that to his benefit? I think that Bashar al-Assad would do anything to stay in power. Well, the final word that I was interested in in Shelley and Nancy is because the question got to, you know, how do we prepare? Because unfortunately, um, one, it's not clear this crisis is going to, the conflict is going to end anytime soon, and we can anticipate new influxes of refugee flows. So in your views, maybe from the education and the humanitarian perspective, what are the best ways we can prepare for what will likely be a continuing increase in this? Okay. Um, I think the best way to prepare for a continuing increase uh, and a continued stay is, is integration. Um, finding ways to integrate the refugees into their new host communities so that they, they can have jobs, they can rent housing, they can attend public schools mixed in with everybody else, because it, to the extent that they're kept as separate groups in camps or uh, through, through, through basically parallel systems of public services, um, the worse that is for them and the worse it is really for the host communities managing this over time. I mean, these are very fragile countries at this point, so adding... Um, um, 
at adding further separations and conflicts between different groups of people is, is a longer-term problem. So to the extent that assistance efforts can <coughs> expand and improve um, existing public sector services and find ways for the Syrians to be self-reliant and build new lives with the expectation that at some point they'll be able to go home, that's probably the best solution. And I guess I would just say, just a reminder to um, all of us in this room, because you're here tonight, um, I, I'm singing to the choir, but when we think about the plight of um, refugees and, and what it means to be a refugee, very difficult to relate to that in many ways, and so maybe it's one of us or maybe it's our ancestors, um, but generally speaking, refugees are people who've been forced out of their home forever, Homes broken, loss of life um, across the board, and I think I just think it's important that we not forget that they are the and I hate to use the word victims, but they are the victims of this crisis. They're they're not the cause of the crises. They're not the enemy. They're the ones who are trying to escape the terrible things that are happening to them. And I think it's important that we try not to fall into the trap where we allow fear to demonize the very people who have been suffering uh, the most and who are just trying to get out of a horrific situation and have a better life. So just, and, and, you know, congratulations to America for humanitarian assistance. I mean, I know, again, I'm an American, so I'm biased. For, but the fact is we really have, you know, your taxpayer's dollar has funded a lot of the humanitarian support that's been needed in Syria um, over the last five years. So, you know, we are doing something about it as America and other countries are, are as well, as, as Ben and Shelley pointed out. But we just can't give up um, on, the, on the Syrian people and on the daily hell that many of them are living through every single day. Well, thank you, Nancy. Thank you, um, Shelley and Ben and all of you here. You're sitting here because you care about this issue. And, and like Nancy said, we have to all keep at it and not lose lose the focus on this critical issue. So um, thanks for an amazing discussion. Really learned a lot. Um, I really appreciate it. Thank you. This presentation is provided as a public service by the RAND Corporation. To learn how you can attend programs at RAND, Visit us online at www.rand.org events.